spiritual life then is the only way in which we can live forever, otherwise forever, otherwise we will die forever. So Jesus says, what is most important, the only thing that truly matters is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, the, the picture of what God showed Israel in the wilderness, that they needed Him that they could not provide on their own, and that their, their need, what they thought was their need for physical provision, was truly the need for God's spiritual provision. Well, that is true for us, and this is what... Hello, and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And we are again studying the temptation of the king. And this begins at really the inauguration after his baptism. And he then is preparing for his ministry. And he goes out into the wilderness. And here he's tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Please be seated. Have you noticed that when you look around at the gods of this world, that they look a lot like us, or perhaps they look a lot like creation? We tend to fashion gods in our own image, and there's a reason for this. We fashion them in our own image, one, because it's all that we really know, and two, because we long for gods that we can manipulate to get what we want. We create gods in our own image, and then we treat them essentially as we would treat one another. The God of the Bible, however, cannot be treated in this way. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be maneuvered into responding in certain ways. We are not to put him to the test by demanding that he meet certain needs or trying to obligate him to certain tasks by misusing Scripture. Instead, we are to take him at his word, quietly and faithfully trusting that he will do all that he has promised. And so what we'll see this morning is that God is faithful, and in the midst of trial and temptation, we must faithfully act upon His Word, trusting that He will do 
all that he has said. Again, God is faithful. And in the midst of trial, we must faithfully act upon his word, trusting that he will do all that he has said. Now, in our text, we are in the temptation of the king. This comes upon the heels of his inauguration, essentially, where he enters into ministry through baptism, through the humility of being identified with his sinful people. And yet, at the end of that baptism, you remember what the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And really, the temptations that the tempter brings focus around that very fact. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus has been sent, was sent to earth to accomplish the work of the Father. And so the tempter comes to seek to end his ministry before it really even begins. As he's in the wilderness fasting and it seems to us praying that he is beginning his ministry by seeking his Father, that this is when the tempter comes. And we've already looked at the first temptation. That is essentially a temptation to exercise his deity independent of his father. He had laid aside the independent use of his deity. That is, he was underneath the father's will on the earth, no less than fully God, no less than able to accomplish those things, simply choosing to live by the will of God alone. And yet, when he is hungry, the tempter comes and says, turn these stones into bread. Exercise your own will. You deserve the provision. You are the beloved son of God. Why are you here suffering in the wilderness? And we saw the circumstances and the condition, and we saw the tempter and even the temptation. Last week, then, we looked at the response that Jesus, in response to this true temptation, remember, he was tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. This is a real temptation. He is truly man. And so he is able to experience the fullness of temptation yet without sin. And so he is tempted to use his deity improperly. He is tempted to step outside the Father's will. And yet he uses to fight that temptation the same tool that we have. Is that not stunning? And we discussed that last week. He doesn't come up with his own word, although he could have and does speak certainly his own word as it were in other places. The Bible is the word of God. and Jesus was, was spoke, inspired scripture continually. And yet here... In this temptation, he uses scripture that was already written, and that is his answer. It is written. It stands written. That is, what was written in the Old Testament is sufficient. The principles there were sufficient to fight this temptation. And we have all of scripture, old and new. And certainly, it is sufficient for us. We talked about this last week. It is sufficient for life. What else do you truly need? What Jesus said was, man shall not live on bread alone. The physical desires that we have, as great as they may be, and, as, and the true needs that they are. We need to eat. We need to drink. We won't physically survive. We need that for physical life. Yet there are more important things in physical life that is spiritual life, because physical life will end. Spiritual life, then, is the only way in which we can live for other, otherwise, forever. Otherwise, we will die forever. So Jesus says, what is most important, the, the only thing that truly matters is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. The the picture of what God showed Israel in the wilderness, that they needed him, that they could not provide on their own, and that their, their need, what they thought was their need for physical provision, was truly the need for God's spiritual provision. Well, that is true for us, and this is what Jesus says. I'm not going to turn the stones into bread. That is not part of God's will at this time, and so I will wait upon him. What he has told me, what the word of God is sufficient we talked about for eternal life and also for growth in godliness. The fact that we are to look more and more like Christ so that he will receive the glory that he so richly deserves. It is sometimes said that the only thing we were left on the earth for is to evangelize. Well, it is the only thing that we can do here that we can't do in heaven. We can't evangelize in heaven. But it's not the only reason we were left here. 
We were left here to look more like Christ, to glorify him, to bring him glory in the midst even of our sinful state. As people see sin burned away, they see the reality of the power of Christ working through us to conform us to his image. What a blessing. It is the word of God alone that accomplishes that. Not moralism, not other, not religiosity, not church going. It's God's word and the power of the spirit that enable us to grow in godliness. And I would ask you, Are you different this week? Are you different this morning than you were last Sunday? Did you actually take the word of God and apply it to your every temptation this past week? Every time you were tempted to exert your own will outside of the will of God, did you instead consider a principle of scripture? Pray and by the power of God enact the truth of that principle rather than stepping out on your own. Are you different? Because if you're not, then that's not the reason to come. The reason to come is not simply to hear more truth, get more information. You are to use it, and you are to use it properly. And we will say that even more strongly this morning. Have you changed? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Did you bring him glory in every circumstance? And when you failed, did you bring him glory by repenting of your sin, by obedience through repentance, through crying out to him for forgiveness, taking hold of what he has provided? Scripture is sufficient. Do you believe it? And if you believe it, are you living it? Well, we're going to see even more strongly this morning, the sufficiency of Scripture as Jesus uses it again, but as most fascinatingly, Satan uses it. Well, let's jump into the temptation. Drop your eyes down to verse 3, excuse me, verse 5. Then, and this is after the first temptation, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. So here we have the circumstances. Each of the temptations had a, a unique circumstance. It flows out of the time in the wilderness. First, Jesus is hungry, but now we're going to see Satan essentially creating a different circumstance. And this is what he loves to do. This is all under the sovereign hand of God. Satan himself does not create circumstance. God allows him to do certain things within this world, and he does. So first, uh, in the circumstances of this temptation, we'll see the order of it. In our our text, it says then. And the reason that I mentioned the order of the temptation, this is the second of three, is that the then gives us, it doesn't always, it's not always a time marker, but in this, in this case, it seems to be. So you have one temptation, then the next one, then the next one, and then the devil leaves. Well, the reason I mentioned it is because in the book of Luke, this temptation actually comes third. And the third temptation we have in the book of Matthew comes second. So which is right? Do we have an error in the Bible? The answer is absolutely not. If you look in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, you will see that Luke there doesn't use time markers. He doesn't say this, he doesn't, he doesn't tie it directly to a chronology, he just simply says, and and, and. Luke presents it, and really it's a little different for Luke. He usually is working in chronological order, right, in the overall flow of the events, but it appears that here Matthew put these in chronological order, and that Luke just simply presents them in essentially kind of the totality of Jesus' temptation. These are the temptations that he faced, whereas Matthew says these are the temptation, and this is the order. And remember that that's an appropriate use of biographical information. You may put it in chronological order, or you may present it as a whole to give a description of someone's life. Either one is acceptable and and right, and Scripture does both. So I just want to remind you of that. When you read your Bible and Luke, you're like, wait a minute, what happened? Again, Luke presents and says, these are all the temptations. Matthew said this one, then this one, then this one. This is the second one, it would seem to us, in the order of three. But I also want you to look at the tempter. So the order is then, next, the second temptation. But look now that there is a different name given to the tempter. So first, we're told he's the one who comes and seeks to draw sin out of the heart of men through circumstance. That's what it means to tempt. Remember, the word tempt in Scripture can either be trial, that is, God brings it that we would look more like him, or Satan uses it so that we would sin. 
God never seeks to draw us to sin. Only Satan does that. He's called the tempter, but here a different side of the tempter emerges. He's called the devil. Now, this is a common use or a common name for, for the enemy of our soul in Scripture. But whenever we have another word used in Scripture, we want to look at what does it mean? Well, the devil has a meaning. And probably the, the one that is focused on here, it really has several meanings. It can be slanderer, accuser, but doesn't seem to be the primary meaning here. It is also has the meaning of adversary, the one who is our enemy. And I just want to remind you of that. The text does, so I want to remind you. This enemy of your soul never rests. Now, he himself is not omniscient. He is not all-powerful. He is not all everywhere, all right? But he's not omnipresent. But he is constantly seeking to, to harm, to destroy, if he could, the people of God. And he does not stop in that task. You can make no peace with your adversary. He is the adversary. Others, you might win to peace. Others, you might be able to get onto your side. Not this one. And yet I think sometimes we somehow seem to think that's the case because we wake up in the morning and we work through our day without our armor. We forget there's an enemy. He tempts, yes, he comes against you to destroy you. He is the one who hates you. He hates God and that's why he hates you. He hates you because you know God. That's why he hates you. He's your enemy. Do you remember that? And are you prepared to meet your enemy? If every day that you knew that your enemy would come against you, would you not be prepared? You must be. And that's what we're reminded of here. The devil comes, the enemy comes, he tempts, he attacks, and he is implacable. He will never stop attacking you. He will never decide, well, I'll take a day off. I'll stop being your enemy. So please remember that you must always be prepared to fight the enemy of your soul. Jesus is. He resists the tempter. He fights the devil. He fights the adversary. You must as well. This is your pattern. But never forget that he is prowling about, that he is the roaring lion, that he is the one who is coming to seek to, to draw you astray. Roman, or Revelation 12, 9 really kind of uses all the names, uh, the most common names of Satan. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He is present on the earth and through his minions, he is not everywhere, and he is not personally opposing you, as it were. He is opposing you through his forces, and he is seeking to bring you down. He is your enemy, and he certainly was the enemy of the Son of God, the enemy of Christ. And that's really the reason that he's your, because he hates Christ and is his enemy. If you are in Christ, he is your enemy as well. Well, now let's look at the transportation. That is, where did they go? Because now we have a movement in location. The first temptation, Jesus had finished, or he'd finished fasting. He was hungry. And so Satan comes to him where he is and says, turn the stones into bread. It's at that same location in the wilderness. But as Satan is constantly crafty and clever, so he feels the need for a change of venue. He is going to change the circumstance, as it were, that the temptation might be more effective. And this is ever his work. And he's going to respond really to the very things that Jesus said, creating a temptation that is going to be most powerful. And that's always what the devil does. He is, if you may for, forgive the, the football illustration, he's the Bill Belichick of the demonic forces. You have no idea who that is. That's okay. He's the coach of the New England Patriots. And he's well known for carefully preparing for every team and taking their strengths away from them and maximizing the strengths of his own team, of using their weaknesses against them. He's a master at this, and it seems the strongest team comes in and plays them, and all of a sudden, they can't do anything right. Well, this is exactly what the enemy of your soul is so good at. 
The very place that you think you are strong, he will attack you there, pointing out your weaknesses, finding the areas of pride, and bringing you down. He tailors the temptation towards you. That's what makes him so powerful. He does not use stock temptations. Well, we'll pull out this temptation. Like, here's stock temptation number 10. We'll pull that one out. No, he's got an individual one for each of you. His minions do. And he knows the human heart, and he uses circumstance, and in each circumstance, there's a particular way that he comes to attack, and that is what he does for Jesus. The place that he takes him in order to accomplish this is into the holy city. Again, look in verse 5. The devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, many have wondered, there's been much ink spilt on whether this was a vision or whether he actually took him into the city. Well, let's take the text as it is. It, it appears that Satan came bodily. He came in bodily form, and so it seems to us that he took him into the city. Whether everyone, whether everyone could see it, I don't know. Whether they watched Jesus coming in, whether they watched him end up on the pinnacle of the temple, we'll talk about that in a minute. I don't know if everyone could see it, but it appears to me that it was just simply the human forms or what appeared to be human forms of these two people that would then that appeared on top of or at the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city. Just a little aside here. Notice that Matthew writing... 25 years after the ascension of Christ, still refers to Jerusalem as what? The holy city. Well, it could simply be that it's referring back to the, the place that, the, that Jerusalem had in, in the life of Israel, but I think it's much more than that. Jerusalem remains central to the purposes of God. It was so in the Old Testament. It was at the time of Christ. Christ treated it that way. It's fascinating how he treated the temple. We'll talk about that later. But Matthew also continues to treat it as an important place. It isn't when Jesus ascended back that the church took over the place of Israel and all of a sudden those places don't mean anything anymore. Who cares about Jerusalem? Who cares about Israel? All of those places have ongoing meaning in the work of God. Scripture tells us this. And in fact, Isaiah 52.1, which, which just kind of reveals to us why this is called the holy city and what is meant by that. Isaiah 52.1, speaking of the millennial kingdom, that is when Christ comes again to set up his kingdom on earth. It says, awake, awake, clothe yourselves in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourselves in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. The holy city for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Speaking of a time when the nations will come, the earth itself will be cleansed, the nations will come, the holy nations will come before God. Revelation 11.2 says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Speaking of end times events in which the holy city, Jerusalem, factors prominently. Well, it does here, it does there, it's all throughout the Bible that Jerusalem is important. And that is where the devil takes Jesus for this display of what he will, what he will seek to get him to do, to display the power of God, which is often and will continue to be displayed in Jerusalem itself. So he takes him into the holy city, and he has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, Pinnacle essentially is highest point, but I don't think it necessarily means the highest point of the temple itself. I think it means the highest point from which, essentially viewing it from the temple downwards, that is, it would seem that where he took him was the portico, which would refer to the flat top corner of, the, of Solomon's porch on the southeast corner of the temple complex overlooking the Kidron Valley. This was what part of the, what Herod had restored and added and from this particular place, it's the, it's the highest place above the ground, as it were. It looks down to the Kidron Valley, which is about 450 feet below. That's quite a fall. Done some rock climbing. If you're up about 400 feet, that's pretty scary. For some of us, up 10 feet is pretty scary. But here he's on the pinnacle. He takes him to the highest place. Just simply, he gives him the greatest height, so there will be the most impressive feat. 
He's up here, 450 feet above the ground. Now, interestingly enough, Josephus tells us that that is where it is, it is reported, he reports, that that's where the apostle James was martyred. He was thrown off the portico. And the 450 feet fall, 50 foot fall, then was used to kill him. So this is where Jesus is, most likely, on the highest point of the temple above the ground, overseeing the Kidron Valley, about 450 feet below. That fall would most certainly kill you. 450 feet is more than enough. Now, the nature of the temptation. And it starts out much the same as the first temptation. So he takes him. Now, again, the, the circumstance is now different. He's put him in different circumstances. And remember that every different circumstance is a place for a new temptation for your heart. Every place you are is a place to be where Satan will, that Satan will use to try to tempt you. Now, the challenge to the Son of God. Verse 6, glance down. And he said to him, if you are the Son of God, the same challenge as before. This still relates to Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as the God-man, Jesus as the one who has been called by the Father himself. Again, this is my beloved Son. Now, in the first temptation, the Son of God seemed to focus on Jesus' deity. That is, exercise your power as deity. Turn the stones into bread. It is fascinating that now Satan seems to be appealing to the human nature of Jesus because he's going to put him in a human situation. Look, you are frail. You could die. Throw your human body could die. Throw yourself off the temple and see if God will protect you. See if he will take care of you. Not exercise your own deity, but have God work on your behalf because you're dependent. Satan will work either way. He'll go after, God's, uh, after Jesus' deity. He'll go after his humanity either way. And remember, he was both. And Satan knew that. He knew he was fully God and fully man. Satan knew exactly who he was dealing with. He was not, had no illusions as to who Jesus actually was. Unfortunately, we do. And much of the world does. They can't even wrap their minds around the fact that he's the God-man. But Satan had no trouble. And he comes, it seems, after Jesus says, fully man. Right? Now again, both, every temptation would involve Jesus as fully man. But it seems like he's focusing on that part of his nature, as it were. And here's the command then, a different command, but he still does the same thing. He gives him a challenge. If you're the son of God, if you're truly the God-man, truly beloved of your father, in this case, if you're truly human, then throw yourself down. Here's the command. Jump off the top of the temple. Now, why in the, why in the world would he ask him this? This, this seems to us, it's like, why would, why would you do this? What, what does have jumping off the top of the temple, essentially, you know, pretending to or, or initiating suicide, how is that actually a temptation? What, what, what is that actually happening? So let's look at the justification for that. Why does Satan use this particular command? Why does he tell him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple? It would seem like that would have no, how could that have any effect? Well, this, what Satan does this time causes this particular temptation to have tremendous impact. Let's see what he says. He said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now this is stunning to us. Look what Satan does. You see, Satan had just come to Jesus and said, turn the stones into bread. Jesus quotes scripture back at him. Satan is a quick learner. And remember, he adapts his temptation just for the moment and just for your strength. So he comes back at Jesus with what? Scripture. Amazing. Satan says the exact same phrase that Jesus used, it is written. It stands written. And he's going to use the Old Testament. I said that Jesus had the Old Testament memorized, or at least much of it, it seems. That he'd meditate on it? Well, it seems that Satan does as well. Which is, by the way, the reason you have to go far past meditation or even memorization, you need to believe it. 
You have to believe that it is truly the word of God. Satan doesn't believe that. He knows it comes from God, but he doesn't believe what it says. And yet he uses it to his own advantage. Never forget that. We'll discuss that more. Satan is not uninformed of Scripture. And as we will see, he even knows how to interpret it properly. He can get the right message out of the Scripture. And by the way, so can a well-informed, reasonable human person. They can get interpretations right. Well, how they use it is going to be the issue. So the justification here, Satan Satan quotes Scripture. It seems as though he is saying this. Oh, ho, two can play at everything that proceeds from the mouth of God is necessary game. I will now quote you some scripture if you believe that it is so important. And if you believe that everything that comes from the mouth of God is what you are to do, I'm now going to quote you some scripture. Do that. Oh, very crafty, devilish scheme. So you say the word of God is the only thing important? Fine. I'll use the word of God and I'll command you with that. Here's the principle. Now follow the principle and put into action the truth of the word of God that you have said is so important. John MacArthur says this, with that subtle and clever twist, the tempter thought he had backed Jesus into a corner. If Jesus lived only by the word of God, then he would be confronted by something from the word of God. You claim to be God's son. You claim to trust in his word. Satan was saying, if so, why don't you demonstrate your sonship, prove the truth of God's word and your faith in it by putting him to a test a scriptural test. Wow. And might I say that this is one of the most dangerous initiatives, the most dangerous schemes of Satan is to use scripture, to use it in proper interpretation, but with wrong application as we will see. And this is the temptation that will get Very few of you are going to simply imbibe someone who comes and says, well, I say do this, and you should go accomplish this, and you look at Scripture and go, it doesn't say that, I'm not doing that. Now, don't give yourself too much credit, or or me. We'll still fall for those things. When it goes after our desires and after our fleshly lusts, we'll still fall. I'm not saying we won't. I'm only saying the temptations that are most prone for you to fall to are those that come through the gateway of Scripture because you, you know it. You're aware of Scripture. You hold Scripture in high esteem And so certainly that's how the devil will come for you, just as he came for Jesus. We'll sprinkle in a little scripture so that we might draw their attention. They hold scripture in high esteem, so we'll get them to use it wrongly. If there's anything going on in the evangelical church today, that's it. Very few people getting up in their pulpits and saying, throw away the Bible. There are some, and it will happen more. But many are saying, let's read a little of the Bible. Let's understand a little. And they'll even get the interpretation right. They'll tell you a little bit about it, and that's fine. And then they'll launch off into things that are absolutely unbiblical. And there's the switch. Uh, There's the Bible. Now let me give you something you're supposed to do, and the two don't match. That's exactly what Satan is doing. He is saying, you believe Scripture is important? So do I. And so I'm going to tell you to do something the Scripture says. So you're stuck. Now you got to do it. So he properly interprets it. Where, where is he quoting from? He's quoting from Psalm 91.11. Go ahead and turn there so you can see that it's there. And again, he's quoting from the Septuagint, the, what's sometimes called the LXX. That is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures purported to be, have, have been translated by 70 Jewish men or 70 Jewish scholars in about 200 BC. So this was the Bible, the Old Testament that was used during that time, a Greek translation. Most of the quotes from the New Testament or many of them are from this Greek translation. So he quotes, and and essentially he quotes it perfectly. 
Now, he leaves out a piece, which we'll talk about in a minute, which I actually don't think is important. I think it's, it's, a proper, it's proper to leave it out in his context. But anyway, Psalm 91, verse 11, here's where Satan is quoting. It says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Notice that he quotes the first part of verse 11 and all of verse 12. He leads out, he leaves out to guard you in all your ways. Now much has been made of that, like somehow he is twisting the scripture because he left a piece out. I don't think that's at all the case. Right? Because the whole, the whole point here is, and the you is those who say, in God I trust. Look up in verse, verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, it is he who delivers you from the, sk- from the snare of the trapper and from deadly pestilence, from those who trust God. That's the you. Well, certainly no one trusts God more than Jesus. And no one has said that more strongly than Jesus. Only the words that proceed from the mouth of God matter. I trust God, the Father, implicitly says Jesus. And so he's in this passage. And the point is, God will protect you. The Father will protect those who trust in Him. And I think the reason that Satan leaves out the last part of verse 11 is that he simply, Satan is making a specific application. This says here to guard you in all your ways. Certainly that would include throwing yourself off the temple. Satan doesn't even need to mention. He goes, look, he says he'll guard you. He says that he will not even allow you to stub your toe. That's how great God's provision will be through his angels. And he gets angels and demons right. Isn't that fascinating? He's a demon. And he gets what angels are for right. Because scripture says it, they are to protect, to guard, to be messengers to, and to be ministers to the sons of men, to believers. That's what they're for, to protect and to guard. Now, we don't see just we don't see demons behind every bush. We don't see angels behind every bush. Yet we know that they are active, that there are myriads and myriads of them, and that they are working in spiritual fashion throughout the world to guard the church, to shepherd it, to be a means that God uses to help the church get to its accomplished purpose. So Satan knows this. He quotes the, enough scripture to get this principle right. This is correct. And it's the right principle. God does protect those who trust in him. This is everywhere in scripture. So Satan gets that right. And he quotes the passage properly. He doesn't need that other piece. Because that just says, and everything, and he's giving a specific place. He will protect you when you jump off the temple. Now, if he has a right quote of scripture, then what's the problem here? Then shouldn't Jesus just do this? Wouldn't this be most affirming to God? Let's prove that what God says when he says he, he will guard you if you trust in him. Let's just prove that right. If your faith is so great and God is so great, then just throw yourself off the temple and let's prove it. Well, there's a problem. Because to do that, to invent that circumstance, or essentially to say, well, God, I haven't seen your provision immediately, so I'm going to bring about the circumstances that make you provide. The scripture calls that testing God. It's a sin. And see, here's the issue. If you're going to know one principle of scripture, you would best know the other principles of scripture so that you can properly use the entire Bible. If you do not, you will be in serious trouble. And that's what happens. Satan wrongly, purposely, it's not like he forgot or he didn't know the scripture, do not test the Lord your God. He certainly knew that one. If he knew this one, he knew that one. He doesn't mention that conveniently because he just gives the one principle and then tells Jesus to apply the principle in a way that breaks another principle. Oh, see, that's really bad hermeneutics.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King. And the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.